using philosophy to understand our city and to change it. This is Phi on New York, the podcast of the Gotham Philosophical Society, with your host, Joe Beal. Last week, Mayor Eric Adams delivered his State of the City address, and apparently it's in a very good state. So I thought it fitting that we take up the matter here. But rather than take a deep dive into the details or lack thereof of the mayor's speech, I wanted to zoom out for a somewhat wider perspective on the condition of the city and some of the issues that it is currently facing. To do so, I invited the New York-based writer Ross Barkin to join me. Ross is not only a prolific writer, but one of tremendous breadth. He is a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine, authors a weekly political column for Crane's New York Business, and his work appears frequently in New York Magazine, The Atlantic, The Nation, and other outlets. He has authored three books, among them the novel The Night Burns Bright, and a book that Publishers Weekly described as an excoriating takedown of, the New York, of New York's former governor entitled The Prince, Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus, and the Fall of New York. He is also the author of a Substack newsletter on New York and national affairs called Political Currents by Ross Barkin. Here is our conversation. Ross Barkin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. Okay, I you know, I've been looking forward to uh, speaking with you. Um you're one of the more interesting writers um that I'm familiar with. Uh, in terms of your interest in the city, your focus on on the day-to-day news of the city, but also your interest in much broader cultural ideas and trends. And I guess I'm looking um, to have you uh, speak to that, kind of bridge what's going on in New York, um, in the city, uh, with these kind of wider cultural and, and somewhat philosophical ideas that you are clearly so interested in. So, you know, maybe starting to, to kind of get the feel of, of where I want to go, um, I want to kind of read the opening paragraph of an article you published last uh, month uh, in The Guardian called The Zeitgeist is Changing, A Strange Romantic Backlash to the Tech Era Looms. Cultural upheavals can be a riddle in real time. Trends that might seem obvious in hindsight are poorly understood in the present or not fathomed at all. We live in turbulent times now, at the tail end of a pandemic that killed millions and for a period reordered the existence, reordered existence as we knew it. It marked perhaps more than any other crisis in modern times, a new era, the world of the 2010s wrenched away for good. I'd like you to start um, with your thoughts about kind of the state of the city following uh, last week's uh, mayor's state of the city speech. We are four years almost from the start of the pandemic. What has happened to the city? Where is the city? How has it changed from Bill de Blasio's 2019 or I'm, I'm sorry, 2020 state of the union in January uh, to Eric Adams, State of the Union, where, uh, State of the City. Where are we? It, How has it, the it, city changed? 
Yeah, no, it, it's a great question. And it's something I think about a lot because the city is, I think, in an unusual place. If you looked at the 2010s, it was a time of growing inequality, growing wealth. Um, every year there was more tourism. There w- was a homeless problem, but it wasn't quite as acute. There was no such thing as a migrant influx. There's always immigrants coming in, but there wasn't this type of migrant influx. And, you know, there was the feeling that New York City was becoming, as, as Michael Bloomberg once called it, a luxury product. And there were downsides to that. But the unsteadiness and sort of instability wasn't there. I, I, I think in some ways it was also more sterile. Um, you know, New York today is in a still much healthier place than it was in the 1970s and 1980s in terms of crime and the economy. If you want to just look at those two factors that people care most about, violent crime has fallen since peaking during the pandemic, which is very good news. Violent crime is still higher than it was in 2019. So that's an important distinction. You know, if you think of the 2010s, something that characterized New York under de Blasio and the end of Bloomberg was declining murders almost every year. Certainly when de Blasio is mayor until the pandemic, you see the murder rate going down and down to points that, you know, would have been unthinkable in the 1990s, even early to mid 2000s. If you look back at how many people were killed then versus um, the late 2010s. So, you know, you, you have a city now where there's a lot more visible homeless. There are a lot more visibly mentally ill people than I think there were five, six, seven years ago. And I do think it's a city in transition. It's certainly nowhere near the um, sort of dire place it was in the 1970s. And I think that the good news is between the federal government and the you know, economic recovery, the city's coffers are in much better shape than they looked like. If you go back to 2020, 2021, when it looked like the pandemic really was sending us off a fiscal cliff. And I do think people forget the economic, in addition to the you know horrible you know human toll of the pandemic, the immediate economic challenge. You know, the United States in free fall, cities like New York looking like they were going to collapse economically, like they did during the fiscal crisis in the 1970s only worse from there we're in a much better place and so the question now is how can we grapple with the rise in the mentally ill the the rise in homelessness the housing affordability issue is always an issue throughout the 2010s feels even more acute now rents have skyrocketed during the pandemic they have plateaued a bit but they're still quite high. So you have all these intersecting challenges. So it's definitely a very strange time. I can talk more about maybe how it relates to that that romantic backlash I I wrote about. But it's interesting because on one hand, you have this, um, you know, 
issue of crime, you have this issue of homelessness, this issue of mentally ill people not getting the services they need. And at the same time, you still have a very expensive and desirable city. So it does create that conflict or or that you know sense of almost cognitive dissonance where if you think of the 1970s and 1980s, New York was in rough shape in many ways, but it was also a cheap city relative to where it is now. And New York is not a cheap city today by any means. Not at all. Um, I very much would like you to connect this up to um, your piece on on kind of a new romanticism. But um, just staying here with some of the points you just made, in particular, um, homelessness and um, mental illness, saying that, that there's, and we see it, the, this rise in um, homelessness, there's more homeless people, houseless people, um, and uh, increase in, in acts that seem to be the result of mental illness. Could you venture uh, some thoughts on why this you know what is the responsible for this rise on you know on the one hand you can think about what is the city doing is this uh, is has the city failed to meet the crisis and hence it's rising or are there mm-hmm. other factors which are contributing mm-hmm. to this that the city is perhaps you know trying to grapple with uh, and maybe not even seeing clearly what is mm-hmm. precipitating these these uh, increases yeah as someone who has written critically of both Mayor Eric Adams and Governor Kathy Hochul, I will say on the issue of mentally ill people on the streets, they're both fairly clear-eyed about it. The problem stretches beyond New York City government, certainly even beyond New York State government. The seeds of this problem go back very go back decades now to the well-intentioned but ultimately disastrous movement towards deinstitutionalization. And and this was, as some of your listeners might know, a reform-oriented movement that started in the 1950s and 60s to close mental health hospitals and asylums. And there, at the time, were reasons to do this. They could be inhumane places. People were confined there against their will. People were lobotomized. We've all seen or read the novel, probably One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. It, it's among my favorite books, and it's a very good movie. It's also a work of art that that did did no favors in, in, in terms of um, the, the place we're in today because that was how mental institutions were understood. And that wasn't wrong because they needed tremendous reform. You know, you, you had instances of like a, a Kennedy sister getting lobotomized against her will and, and, and shunted away for the rest of her life. We don't want to go back to that. The problem was they closed all these institutions. The idea was, well, you'll get them care close to home, you know, me- people with, with mental health issues, and we'll have more medication. So between medicating and these close to home localized facilities, the problem will be solved. It didn't happen that way. Instead, you had many, many thousands of people released from these institutions and they ended up on the street and they ended up in prisons. If you look at a chart 
you know, the rising incarceration rate to the closing number of mental health institutions, it's almost a perfect correlation. I'm not saying it's entirely correlated, but the, re- the, the reality is, you know, 60, 70, 80 years ago, you'd be sending a person with severe mental health issues to a mental asylum of some kind. Now they go to Rikers Island and they go to prison. So it's not better. And in many ways, it's worse. What, what we need are humane facilities, h- housing and healthcare facilities where people with real mental health issues can go. And I, I myself, you know, I write from a left perspective and, and, you know, I don't like to slap labels on myself, but certainly if one called me a leftist, they would, they would not be wrong. Um, I get a lot of pushback here because there's sort of this strange uh, idea it's strange to me, at least, that the most humane thing to do for someone who's struggling with schizophrenia, struggling with bipolar, who really can't take care of themselves, is to let them live on the street, to let them live in, in a, we don't really have tent cities in New York, but to let them live kind of in a, in a little hovel or let them live in a homeless shelter, let them sleep on the subway. And it's bad for everyone. It's bad for, for you know, people living in the city who don't have mental illness. And it's really bad for the people who have mental illness because they are vulnerable, they're exposed to crime, they are, you know, exposed to police action, they get sick, they die, Um, you know, Rikers Island, and you know, the, the prison system is not where we should be treating people. But the reality is, for a lot of these sorts of people to get the sort of mental health care they need and almost the forced mental health care because a lot of them are not taking the medications they should um it's done in prisons and jails so my view is that we really need to start expanding the number of psychiatric beds expanding the number of mental health facilities having safe affordable humane places people with mental illness who are experiencing homelessness can go and live and I do think the good news is that both the mayor and the governor agree. And you've seen on the part of the governor kind of a small expansion number of psychiatric beds. The reality is you're going to need a much bigger one. And you're going to need to find ways to get more people who are living on the streets, who are suffering into these kinds of facilities. And I, I think in the long term that will start to happen um, and the and the other part of this in terms of homelessness is the decline in very cheap housing. So I mentioned the 1970s in New York City. If you go back, I was not alive in the 1970s, but I've certainly done my research and talked to a lot of people who were. And, and one thing that is interesting about New York in the 1960s and 70s is even though there was a severe economic downturn, the fiscal crisis, and the city being hours from bankruptcy, there was not a homelessness problem. There were there were there was not the idea that you saw people just sleeping out on the streets, many people sleeping in subway cars. If you were poor and you were not mentally ill, but you were just very poor, you were down on your luck, you went to live in an SRO single room occupancy housing. And and the city had many SROs, these cheap hotels. They were not the best. They could be rough places to be, but they were warm shelter. And if you were someone who had only a few bucks in their pocket, who didn't have good credit, you know, who really could not sign a one-year lease, you went to an SRO hotel, you got a bed, and that's where you lived. And that entire system was eradicated 
in the 1980s and the 1990s as they were outlawed, as they were converted into market rate hotels, into condos, or just demolished entirely. So that was another massive policy failure of the era was the destruction of the SROs. You know, there's a a thread that we can um, link these kind of two different issues and, and the the exacerbation of the problems that you just you know, went through. Um, the issue of you know, philosophers like to use the term autonomy, um, the idea of being kind of self-directed and self-responsible, uh, taking responsibility for oneself. Um, with respect to mental illness and the idea of having um, perhaps forcing people to take their medication or forcing people to seek out help, um, the idea of respecting their autonomy, allowing mm. them to make their own decisions, um, on the one hand, in, is potentially endangering, even though one thinks that one is doing something um, you know, good for them, respecting you know, their ability to make their own decisions. Um, and the kind of the increase in incarceration, putting people in prisons, Again, in part, this is the only alternative when you are kind of removing the various other kinds of institutions that could help them. But again, emphasizing, in a sense, their responsibility for their behavior. Okay, you've behaved in this way. You belong in prison. You belong in jail. You have to mm -hmm. take responsibility for your actions, for your choices. Um, and that this kind of emphasis on autonomy um, is harmful in some context and for some people. They lack the autonomy. And kind of trying to um, or appreciating that is sometimes a kind of ethically and a politically fraught um, thing to do. Um, and then on the, on the, again, on housing, you know, the idea of, um, you know, emphasizing get people's own choices that, um, you know, let people decide for themselves in a sense how they want to live or where they want to live or, and can let people who own property make their own decisions about how they, you know, you know how they want to build, what kind of housing that they want to provide, whether it's market rate or something more affordable. Um, and wondering if, if that, resonates with you like you know that this sort of kind of emphasis um mm. on uh, on autonomy which again we generally think of as a very positive thing we want people to be able to make decisions for themselves but that it has um it has these implications at times which seem very very problematic on a on a wider scale it, it's a it's a great point, and when you think about autonomy, yes, I think in our our culture, it, it certainly has positive connotations, and I certainly believe people should have a degree of autonomy. We also live in a society of the social contract, right? And that's why we have laws. That's why we have limitations. That's why we can't run around and do literally anything we want all the time. There there are restrictions and, and limitations. I think it, it's really interesting thinking about the view on mental illness. And I, I'm fortunate to not struggle with mental illness. Um, I do know people and I've had family who do. And th there's this very 
romantic notion and romantic in the sense of like, you know, the, the, the romantics of the, of the early uh, 1800s and, and what I was writing about in that guardian piece a bit that, you know, the, the, the individual vision should be, um, you know, what is most emphasized it, it's what is most divine and that even, you know, mental illness can be a form of mental awakening. And you see this in, in, in certain circles, certainly it's not new, but I think the internet has given it new life where, you know, the medications are limiting you that you can, you can see clearly once you embrace your mental illness, you embrace your bipolar, your schizophrenia, your, your delusions, your hallucinations, then you are in, in some way, more liberated than you would be otherwise. And then there's, you know, the writer, Freddie DeBoer, who I like a lot, and he struggles with mental illness and he writes very well on this. And I've certainly, um, you know, my views on this have, have been sharpened by his writing where he, he pushes back against this pretty aggressively because he has struggled with mental illness his home, his whole life. He's been institutionalized and he says it over and over again. I did not have autonomy when I was experiencing hallucinations, when I was paranoid, when I was on the verge of death. I am better off now medicated. I can have a life. I can function. So I do think it, it is a dangerous notion. And in some ways you, you can trace it back, you know, uh, at least tangentially to the romantics and, and, and perhaps further. Um, that once you are free of all this, you know, psyche, psyche, you know, psychiatric treatments, you know, once you're free of these ins institutions, you know, you are, you are going to live as you should, when in reality, that means you're going to probably end up homeless, dead, in a prison cell. If you're experiencing these illusions, you're more likely to commit a crime to assault someone, or to have crimes committed against you to be killed by someone to be killed by police so it's it's for, for sure i mean and, and, it, and it's very reasonable to have these debates about civil liberties about autonomy about, about you know what point should someone be forced to take medication at what time at what point should someone be forced into a mental health facility of some kind i mean these are real debates and there's no easy answers but I do think that the reality is what we do in the United States is not working. What we do in New York City is not working. Letting people with severe mental health issues live on the streets is not good for anyone. And, you know, I think the sooner, uh, I'd say, you know, people understand the better. Again, I think the good news is the average person and certainly even the medium politician understands that it is not sustainable to have a society um, like that. And certainly the old ways of lobotomization or, you know, really cold, dark prison, like mental health facilities, not the answer either. The answer are, is, you know, well-funded, humane, living facilities where people who struggle can be properly medicated. And maybe at some point, if they're on the right trajectory, they can be released into, you know, a, a different sort of housing setting. 
In what way do you think the city contributes to mental health issues, not just from you know, in the context of, of or with respect to some of the most severe cases that we're primarily talking about here, but maybe all of us. Um, is this city a healthy city or, or com- and comparatively to, say, again, before the pandemic? I'm curious your thoughts about that in terms of what this city really is for, kind of, you know, for us, for the people who live here. Are we better off being here? And are we better off now than we were four years ago? Yeah. You know, the, the, the pandemic, I'll, I'll speak, I'll speak to the pandemic first and then to New York city uh, as a whole, since I've lived in New York city my whole life and I, I grew up here, uh, the, you know, the, the pandemic was deeply destabilizing and I still think we as a society don't quite have not quite grappled with the way it destabilized. We, we know the death toll, the death toll is enormous. We know about lockdowns and, and how for a period of time, you know, society was ground to a halt, except for, of course, essential workers who had to keep going to work, um, who get shunted aside sometimes in that narrative. But, you know, it's going to take many years, decades probably, to properly put the pandemic into context. And, I, and I, my hope is historians and academics really grapple with it, with the psychology of it, with the different enthusiasms, right? If you look back at the George Floyd protests of 2020, I would not diminish them in any way. What I would say is they were inextricably bound up to the pandemic. And at the time, that would have been somewhat controversial to say. Now it is not. And I think in the coming years, um, I hope there's more study on the psychology of people under duress, kind of what happens, what are their enthusiasms, what are their manias, um, and, 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 and certainly, you know, the, the the rise in crime that came with the pandemic, you know, the rise in violent crime, the rise in petty crime. I think all of it in some way was linked and it's going to take a lot of study to really understand, you know, what is it that happened? You know, young men in particular, given more free time, taken out of their normal routines, taken away from the institutions they knew, it, a, a lot was going on. So I don't think in 2024, we don't quite have the distance yet from it. Uh, my hope is that there is more study. There was not a whole lot done with the 1918-1919 uh, pandemic. A lot of it was really thrown down the memory hole to the point where it was a shock to many of us when you when we saw old pictures from 1919 and 1920 and people were wearing masks and and, and you saw there was an understanding a hundred years ago of of the danger kind of an airborne illness and we almost had to entirely relearn that concept and that was i think because of the way memory functioned and the way even the institutions um grappled with the fallout of the of the flu pandemic of that era 
certainly, you know, you had another world war, uh, world war two, which I think helped to push it to the side and certainly world war one occurring simultaneously. So, you know, many factors contributed the New York, so New York city itself and how does it contribute to people's mental states? I mean, it's a fascinating question. I think in some ways, New York can be a very enriching place for your mental state. You know, you can really find peers, you can find affinity groups, you can, if you have an interest in almost anything, there are people in New York City who share those interests. And I think that's the wonderful thing about it. If you want to do something, meet someone, especially now with the internet, and that's a good thing about the internet, it's, it's, it's rather convenient to find others and to, you know, really just kind of fall into different social groups and mingle with different kinds of people. I think that's wonderful. I think New York can be a deeply stressful place. You know, you have noise, stress, you have crowds, depending on where you live, you have very little green space. I, I'm fortunate I live in Bay Ridge and I, I grew up here and I choose to live here in part because there is a lot of green space and I can jog in peace and, and I can sort of get a little bit of that suburban slice while still being off a train line. Um, I know perhaps my, my mental health would be different if I lived in a place that was entirely concrete, that um, was quite noisy, and and kind of tested my patience a lot more. You know, we, we certainly, if, if you're commuting every day, you have to accustom yourself to certain stressors. You have to develop certain certain coping mechanisms. How to crowd into a large, how to crowd into a train car. You know, how to ignore or avoid uncomfortable situations. If you're a woman, certainly it's the fear of getting sexually harassed. Um, you know, men don't grapple with that as much. Um, and I think all New Yorkers certainly, you know, think about and worry about, you know, the random crime, the random uncomfortable interaction, which I think with the pandemic has increased with the rise in the me- in mentally ill uh, and homeless people. Um, on on the subway and on, on streets. So, you know, that, that certainly can contribute to people's mental health. And, and I love rural areas and I love the country, but I, I would say certainly mental health struggles are very real there as well. And if you look at, you know, the opioid epidemic and you look at, um, you know, other problems of, 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 of mental health, of, of even ennui, you know, certainly you can find that in a rural area. So I don't want to romanticize non-city living or suburban living. I think they all come with their advantages and they all come with their real drawbacks. I think whether you're living in a suburb, a city, a rural area, an exurb, you know, you are going to have real benefits to being there. It, it's a lifestyle you might prefer, but also real drawbacks. But, you know, I mean, New York City can be a tough place. It's I, I do think the expense of the city weighs on you. The idea that you, even if you're doing well, there's this feeling that you can't really get ahead. That you know you can be having a middle class living and still be nowhere close to affording a home, whether an apartment, whether a house, and that's hard. And and that's harder on younger generations, especially because this was not something that the baby boom generation grappled with. If, if you're a baby boomer, even Gen X, you know New York's problems were crime. And that was and that was th- th- those are real problems. It was disinvestment. 
you know, it, it was the falling tax base and I, I wouldn't diminish those at all. But the flip side was, you know, if you were entrepreneurial, if you were, were willing to, you know, take a bit of a risk, you can have yourself a brownstone for, you know, $10,000 in Park Slope. Or, you know, you can get yourself a, a decent house in a far-flung neighborhood for, you know, whatever, $100,000, maybe less. Or you can just rent a cheap apartment somewhere in the East Village for, you know, a few hundred dollars a month or something like that. And and that's changed. I mean, even in my time as, an, as a working adult in New York City, that has changed. My first apartment in 2014 now, a decade ago with my girlfriend, it was for $1,100 in Sheepshead Bay. And it was a one-bedroom apartment. And you cannot find a unregulated $1,100 one-bedroom apartment in, in New York City. It just, it just will not happen today. So that, that's, that, and that's a stressor. That can weigh on you both uh, you know, from a fiscal perspective, but also from an emotional perspective as well, the struggle to make rent. Absolutely. Um, there's a couple of things in your remarks there, kind of two directions I want to go in. You know, one um, particularly the relationship of the internet um, to the city, which I think ties into your guardian piece, um, a- as well as a- a- another piece you wrote about um, three factions of American culture, which I'd like to hear your thoughts on. Before, though, I'd, I'd like to maybe sp- spend just a couple of minutes, um, kind of the-, the pandemic, coming out of the pandemic, or, you know, while at the Kind of still in it, New York elects Eric Adams. That's the mayor that they choose at that moment in time. Could you say why? Eric Adams won. It, it was for a few reasons. It was a very interesting mayoral election. It lacked a true front runner. There were different candidates at different times who were in the lead. Um, in some ways, it lacked. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say entirely lacked marquee candidates, but it, it was not a race that you know had for, for a variety of reasons the most sort of vaunted or talented politicians running. Eric Adams also really fit the zeitgeist well. Early twenty twenty one, when the primary was held, and, and it was held in June, the concern was rising crime. You know, New York had been accustomed to declining murder rates, declining shootings, and these numbers were ticking upwards. They would continue to rise for, I think, another year or so. So you had a former police captain, a black man from the outer boroughs, Brooklyn Borough president, grew up in Queens, who could speak very emotionally and viscerally to the sphere of crime. And he could say with real life experience that he helped combat crime as a former police captain and and transit officer. And he was one of the few candidates in the race that had a very distinct and well-distilled message. And that's always important in crowded primaries. You know, you want to stand out, you want to be about something. A lot of the candidates were very muddled. Eric Adams was not muddled. He also benefited from 
a lack of scrutiny until the very end of the primary. He was not the front runner initially. Andrew Yang, who had run for president, who is something of a political celebrity, sucked up a lot of the oxygen, a lot of the press scrutiny. He fell back eventually because of that scrutiny. And Adams peaked at really the right time. And, and stories were breaking about his questionable residency. He, he might have been living in New Jersey while he was for, for president. There were questions about his political record you know, even some of his old remarks, but it was coming very late in the race. So it really takes a few months of scrutiny for um, that to all marinate with the electorate. And it didn't really happen. And he almost lost. It was a very close race. Kathleen Garcia, who ideologically was similar to him, but appealed a lot more to upscale moderates and progressives came within 10,000 votes of beating him in, in the ranked choice voting tabulation. So, you know, it, it was definitely a close race. Um, he managed to eke it out. And I think it was because he had that messaging around crime. He was someone who was taken seriously at the time. You know, he was seen as, you know, possessing a deep resume and CV. And he was seen as a figure who could really turn the city around from its pandemic doldrums. And he has not overall been a very successful mayor, but that was the vision of him at the time. From your perspective of your political analysis, you know, in your answer, you went into kind of the details or the, you know, the, the, the specific kind of ins and outs of the, election and, and media coverage. Is that more important and more kind of consequential than maybe something a little bit more philosophic or ideological when you know you think about how frequently you would hear during the pandemic how much of an opportunity this was for just a social reset that you know we can you know things have changed we can just do new things now. We can think big. Um, you know, we can just kind of start over again. And what the electorate chose instead was normality. And I think you, at one point in one of your pieces, you, you spoke of uh, Adams as the mayor for the normies. And even you know, noting that in fact, Catherine Garcia almost beat him, but she seems kind of a normie too. You know, what what impact does kind of that kind of a really what people wanted was something much more normal, much more stable, much more secure than trying something new. So it, it, it's interesting because you had these different currents, which both were real and, and, and both mattered and still matter, which on one hand, yes, there was this sense of we can reinvent, we can reimagine, the policy parameters can be moved. I'll, I'll start and say, you know, looking at the national scene for a moment, you know, Donald Trump and Joe Biden spent enormous amounts of money to rescue the economy, far more than Barack Obama ever spent in the Democratic Congress um, in 2000, 
nine and, and 10 when the country was in a free fall from the 2008 crash. So the, the pandemic immediately created these conditions where two po- very different politicians were willing to pump enormous amounts of money into the economy. And this was successful, I, I, I think, because we're grappling with inflation now and there's a lot of discontent and the causes of inflation are complex and in many ways they're global and certainly some of it can be tied to the amount of money pushed into the economy at that point. And there are a lot of criticisms of the um, of the program that bailed out small businesses, um, the, the PPP loans. All of it ultimately worked in the sense that the economy was saved from a global depression. So I will always defend it on those grounds. So I think on one hand, the, 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 the Overton window really expanded. And you can see in Biden's presidency, you know, really some, some real sweeping legislation on infrastructure and green energy that you would not have seen otherwise. And I think you saw a level of ambition that was missing in the Obama years. And I think despite Biden's struggles, um, you know, he'll be judged fondly for all that. At the same time, you had, through the election of Joe Biden, and certainly through the election of Eric Adams, a feeling that we could not take risks politically. It was this strange uh, kind of double, double vision almost, where politicians themselves could could find room to do things they would not otherwise but at the same time the electorate when voting looked towards safe options because the world seemed to be falling apart all around them so joe biden 2020s was certainly a safe harbor and he was viewed as the only candidate who could beat donald trump that's why he won that primary eric adams similarly promises to bring crime down and resuscitate the city. Catherine Garcia, similar candidate in many ways, you know, a, a moderate who was tough on crime, who had experience in the city bureaucracy. You know, these were not necessarily change candidates. They're not insurgents by, by any means. And the, the electorate absolutely favored them over a you know, Bernie Sanders type, you know, someone promising sweeping change, which I think in, in some ways the, the calls for revolution, the calls for great change politically hold a bit more appeal when there's a degree of safety in the world, when there's perhaps discontent, but a feeling that we can take those risks. And by 2020 with the pandemic, the feeling was we can't afford to take huge risks. We've got to get Trump out, or in the case of Adams, we've got to get someone into office who will do something about the rising murders and shooting. So I, I, I do think those currents very much are there um, if we think about politics. So picking up on the other theme, the internet and you know you made the remark that the internet in some respects um fits nicely with the city and how the city functions to bring people together like-minded uh people people sharing the same kind of interests there was an essay um back in may written by uh the urban economists uh edward glazer and Carlo Ratti trying to um, offer 
a solution in some way to the amount of empty office space, the fact that people um, shifting to remote work are not coming back into the offices and how this is impacting the city, impacting the economy of the city. And, you know, they proposed that the city needs to, in a sense, transform itself, that it needs a kind of another kind of almost revolution in its own sense of uh, identity and become what they referred to as a playground city. I think the proposal is rather interesting the way that, that, you know, their need to kind of focus on bringing people together um, and having people much more focused on coming into the city for entertainment purposes, for social purposes, rather than um, work purposes. What particularly struck me, though, was the way they framed this piece and kind of the motivation for it was that the city needs to become an alternative to the internet, that the internet itself um, poses in, in some fashion almost an existential threat to the nature of the city itself. And, and when I read your zeitgeist piece, and I think the, the three factions of American culture, where you talk about micro, macro, and meso cultures, and I'm going to ask you to briefly <laughs> define those, I immediately thought back to that piece and to that to this idea that that the city needs to needs to be this alternative to a life lived online that people want they need to go outside and they need to be with one another and to interact with one another and that the city needs to reorganize itself in order to really provide that there is absolutely in these you know waning days of the pandemic or, or post pandemic, however you want to describe it. Certainly, we're psychologically now post pandemic. There is absolutely a greater hunger to meet in person and to do in person activities, and there is a quiet rebellion against the internet. And, and I wrote about that both in my Guardian piece and and. Uh, also intertwined it into the micro macro meso culture piece, which, which I will certainly uh, define for the, for the listeners um, in, in a moment. And I, I think that's right that, that New York city has to pitch itself as the physical playground, as the space where we can detach from our online lives, which there's a growing awareness uh, of how corrosive online activity can be. Obviously, the internet can be a real benefit and a boon. We all use the internet every day. I do, and I've met people, you know, through through my Substack, um, and then I try to meet them in person as well. Um, and and there's 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 a real yearning for connection as kind of part of this romantic backlash against you know these tech incursions and. You know, I, I wrote a piece recently for, for my Substack, Political Currents, on the, the three segments of, of American culture. And I was looking at the macro, the micro, and the meso. And right now, we're in a real tension or, or, or at a real tension point or, or at a real conflict 
between the macro and the micro. And the macro, and I did not invent these terms, but I happily appropriated them. The macro refers to what we think of as mainstream culture, um, Hollywood, mainstream media, conventional magazines, you know, conventional news or entertainment websites. You know, and when we talk about legacy publications, um, that's all in the macro. As are the so the tech giants, so Facebook, you know, Google or Alphabet or Facebook and Meta, um, and um, Apple, Amazon. You know, they, they too are part of this macro as well, and they are traditionally. Um, are thought of together as the cultural producers. And in some cases, they're very intertwined with the micro. In the micro are all these insurgents, you know, like YouTube creators, like Substack writers, like TikTokers, and, and all, all of this kind of energy that's germinating online that is experiencing rapid growth while the macro culture experiences rapid decline. As we record this, there have been mass layoffs at the Los Angeles Times, at Sports Illustrated, at Pitchfork, at the Washington Post. These are all macro cultural institutions. So the story in short is macro cultural decline, micro cultural growth. And, you know, I use the example in the writer Ted Joya, who has been really, um, really good at, at synthesizing and writing about these trends. He talks about the YouTube creator, Mr. Beast, who is not terribly famous to certain people, but is the most popular YouTube creator. And he's experienced rapid growth over the last few years. And Stripe, the payment processor, which processes payments for Substack and, and for most um, online transactions. They track this so-called creator economy and they've seen rapid growth in the last few years. So while the macrocultural has contracted continually, the microcultural has boomed. And I have very mixed feelings about that because I'm someone who has a lot of affinity for macrocultural institutions. I work or write for macrocultural institutions. I'm also a part of the microculture because I have a substack and I'm very committed to it. Um, and so what, what I write about in my piece is that we really need, in addition to these two, a stronger mesoculture. And the meso is the in-between. And, and I use the example of indie culture from the 2000s, which was in the early days of the internet, but was not entirely captured by the internet but really grew out of in-person interactions. And if we think about like the old counterculture in the 1960s and the 70s, um, which really pushed back against the, the mainstream, you know, the, the, the counterculture was kind of like a classic uh, mesocultural thing that in-between space, you know, I, I think we as a society need more in-between spaces. You know, we, we can't have a, a healthy culture where, YouTube and TikTok are booming and mainstream media is collapsing and that's all and where all of these cultural interactions are happening online. You know, TikTok's a great example of this. A lot of young people are using it as, a, as an activism tool, certainly in the ongoing um, 
in Israel's ongoing war on Gaza and then their killing of, of Palestinians, that there's a lot of pro-Palestine sentiment on TikTok. And, you know, part of what I have written and others have written as well is that if you're an activist, TikTok is not enough and is not hospitable. And I think what's interesting about the micro macro cultural tensions is these big tech companies are in both. The large tech companies largely do not innovate anymore. I think that this is this is something that surprises people when I say it, but if you think about it it's true. You know, what is the last great innovation to come out of Apple? The iPhone. The iPhone now is a bit old. The iPhone came out when I graduated from high school. I'm now 34. Uh, since then, it's been, oh, you can get a new iPhone. And something you see with tech now is actually, it's not always better, right? I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a Samsung user, not, not an Android. I don't have an iPhone, but you know, whether it's a, an Android or an iPhone, you know, the battery life gets worse. It gets glitchier. Laptops now, it seems like they break every few years. Google search results are getting worse, not better. They're crowded with AI and with spam. Uh, you know, I mean, Amazon is safe economically because they have the whole, you know, online marketplace to themselves pretty much. But they're not innovating anymore, right? Um, nothing new really is coming out of them. Their great bid was, at least from, from Facebook and Meta, it was um, virtual reality that's been a flop. AI is now the great touted innovation, but what is AI? It's regurgitation of already available information, right? It's it's taking other people's writing and repackaging it. It's it's plagiarism, or in the case of art, it's art plagiarism, and and it's cute and it's fun, but at some point you ask the question, well, you know, what what's the there there? And I think certainly companies are using AI. It can assist humans in doing activities. But when you think about the great technological innovations of the 20th and early 21st centuries, you know, th these were technologies that were doing things humans could never do, like take flight or travel, you know, 80 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour, or, you know, light up rooms, you know, in, indoor plumbing. Certainly the, the internet itself is a fantastic innovation unimaginable to someone you know living 50 years ago my point is the innovation period has stopped and and now you have the large tech companies hoping to glom off of the energy and growth of the microculture who owns youtube it's google who owns uh, instagram it, 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 it's facebook and i think even instagram will probably slow down at some point um, you know, TikTok is obviously part of ByteDance, you know, Chinese conglomerate. And, you know, you, you are seeing this very interesting tension. And I'm curious to see what creators in the microculture do in the, in the coming years if they decide, you know, does it make sense to be on these very large tech platforms that ultimately are not friendly to either video creators or writers. And, and I'm a writer and I care about the written word and, and something I've seen consistently, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Twitter, whether it's Instagram, they're all very hostile to the written word. You know, Twitter now is suppressing all news and, and written links. Facebook has long been suppressing news content. Instagram won't even let you post links. 
So I think, you know, all, all of these all these platforms in a bid to control the flow of information, to control users, have really consistently shut out people who want to write and work with the written word. And that's actually a lot of people. I think that's why you've seen Substack grow so much in, in the past few years. So where this all is going, I don't know exactly. But my hope is, my hope is that we have far more in-person interactions and and cultural productions and cultural awakenings that we have real um you know cultural innovation again and my hope is we treat the internet as ancillary to everyday life as something that can be a bonus or added benefit but that is not something that's all consuming and my fear is that certainly with young people now teenagers and 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 even those who, who are younger that they will have their their growth stunted by living life online. That they will face you know serious mental instability. And, and my hope that is that that will change in, in the coming years. There'll be more awareness of kind of the, the dangers of living a life entirely online. One of the most notable things for me that you know, stuck out from uh, Eric Adams' State of the City address was the identification of social media as a, as a health problem. And um, I know he was in his remarks specifically focusing on how these big companies um, invading privacy and, and the dangers for children um, who are on it too much and exploiting their attention but it seems even a broader issue than that, where, again, the city might be able to take a, a role in kind of pushing back on a life lived almost entirely online. It, it was definitely welcome. And, and, I, and I think, you know, I, I give Adams credit, you know, Kathy Holkos talked about it as well. You know, again, there's a broad understanding that, if you t- if you take the the pros and cons of, of most technologies, you would say the pros. I would outweigh the cons. Uh, even the automobile. And the automobile has killed many many people. Right? Let's let's not sugarcoat it. The automobile still has been a net benefit to the world writ large. That the, that a world without automobiles would be a very different world. Certainly, we would want more mass transit. But but I would say the automobile is in, is an innovation. You could say pros sort of out outstack the cons even with pollution even even with with death or in general the the engine the 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 ability for vehicles to to move right or or certainly train technology you know social media is one of those things i think you're seeing the cons outweigh the pros that whatever benefits it brought you know bringing some people together inculcating friendships you know we we have all I think to an extent, you know, made friendships online um, and had positive interactions. You, you see the really the downsides. You see the distortion of reality. You see the impacts on mental health. You see really how destructive it's been to the well-being of teenagers. And I think that is something politicians are concerned about and it is something that we as a society should grapple with. You know, I feel lucky that I didn't sign up for a Facebook account until I was leaving high school. And you know, early Facebook when I was a user in college was 
very different. You know, it was really just a place you posted pictures from your parties or kind of you popped off a, a status and just went about your day. You know, we, we didn't have, I, I didn't have a smartphone until I left college. So the internet wasn't traveling with me. And, and that's the other, that, that's the other you know, innovation where do, do, do the pros outweigh the cons? And, and the smartphone's a great example. I certainly think the cell phone is a technology the pros outweigh the cons. Cell phones, it's great to have a portable phone. If you're lost, if you've got to find someone, you've got to coordinate activities, you know, phones are, are great. I, I support cell phones. I'm, I'm not a Luddite in that sense. Is the smartphone, right? Well, the smartphone is good. It, it takes great pictures, you know, lets you surf the internet, you know, no amount of information is out of reach now. Uh, there's no such thing as going to have to look up something in an encyclopedia. The cons are are quite large, you know, phone addiction. You know, the s- smartphones are built to addict you. I think we're starting to see smartphone addictions the way we look at gambling or drug addictions. We're not quite there yet. But when you look at all people of all ages, but certainly young people who, who live their entire lives on their phones and that is a very dangerous thing. And that leads to depression. It leads to, to mental instability. It leads to, you know, a inability to conduct yourself in the broader public to a degree. And it's, it, it's a real, real problem. And my hope is that, you know, as I wrote about the, the, the romantic backlash and sort of this new romantic age, there's kind of a movement away from smartphone obsessions. Certainly we're not there yet, but I think at least among some young people, there's a certain fatigue with online culture um, and, and a yearning for something better or beyond it. And, you know, I, I, I hope that continues as I certainly do as well. Um, and I think that there is this possibility of the city kind of providing the means and, and the setting for people to put those phones down and to find, uh, find real connection, uh, with people, the meso culture you're talking about, um, kind of taking place in the city that it, it foments it and um, really makes it possible. I think that would contribute to the city's vitality itself. Yes. And, and I think, I think that's what New York city is for. You know, New York city has incubated many cultural revolutions and upheavals and avant-garde, whether you're looking at, you know, the Bohemian culture of the teens, uh, the Harlem Renaissance, the, the, the counterculture in the, in the, in the village, the punk punk culture on, on the, on the East side and, and in indie, indie rock culture in the two thousands, we've always been a place where, there are cultural flowerings and, and, and really a place where one can go and, and pollinate and meet people and flourish. And my hope is that continues. And again, my, my, I'd say my fear is that New York is, is too expensive a place for an arts culture to take root. I think that's a real problem. But at the same time, 
New York really does offer a lot. And I do think should be pitched as a place where, you know, you can really live a rich life off of the internet. Well, that seems like a great place to end. Um, and with kind of an appreciation of what the city can offer and with a, a plea to make the city more affordable um, so people can actually realize it. Um, Russ Brock, and there are so many more things that we could talk about and, and hopefully maybe, uh, hopefully in the future you can come back on and we can um, hit some of the other topics, but uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this was great. Definitely. Thank you for having me. I, I, I really enjoyed it. And that will do it for this episode. This podcast is a GPS production with theme music composed and performed by Jay Sparrow, titled voice work by Sport Murphy, and logo artwork by Marianne Beal. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this conversation or any of the others and welcome your suggestions for future topics and guests. You can contact me through social media or by email at jsbeal at philosophy.nyc. Thank you for listening, and I hope you join us for the next one. 